And we are back, everybody. Welcome to Pro Photography Podcast number 205. And you are killing your contrast. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simonfx.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. It has been a few weeks since the last podcast. I hope you checked out, uh, well, the last the last few podcasts. We're going to talk about the photo news nuggets, and we're going to talk about this main topic today, which is how you're actually killing your contrast and ruining your contrast with things like the contrast slider. I'm going to explain that in a few minutes, but we're going to jump right in to today's show as we talk professional photography, talk improving our photos in every context, whatever kind of work we do. I want to talk first, though, let's go straight in to the photo news nuggets. And did I just say that like Frono's photo? I I didn't actually mean to. A couple things that caught my eye over the past couple weeks. One is this non's instant back. And it lets you take Hasselblad camera, like a Hasselblad 500C, the, the traditional classic Hassie that you're looking down into the prism. Really gorgeous cameras. I have one uh, that I got from my late mentor, Kim Whitmire. I have three or four lenses for it. I don't use it a lot. Medium format film's expensive, and it's not as easy to adapt all the other vintage lenses to it, of course, because if you take these a 35 millimeter vintage lens, it's not going to bolt on to a Hasselblad. So it's not quite as versatile as the 35 millimeter vintage stuff. But what really caught my eye and something I've been looking at for a long time is thinking about things like the Instax square format and being able to bolt that on because we have these instant films that are that are pretty cool. And you might say, well, that's dumb to take such a premium high-end camera and just do an instant. Well, I mean, we had instant backs for 4x5 cameras, the peel-apart Fuji Instax and stuff like that that are now gone. It wasn't Instax, it was instant film. Instax is the new stuff. Um, there were actually these big sheets of instant and they were used for proofing things like that back in the day. But there is something magical. I've talked to you about using my SX-70. Uh, I actually just recently picked up another instant thing, and it'll probably be my pick of the week this week, actually. So I'll hold off on talking about that. As always, I'll link all the links to the things I'm mentioning, the products, all that good stuff in the show notes at profotoshow.com. But what I think is cool about this concept, and I'd like to see this come out for like 4x5 cameras too, although there's not really a 4x5 instant film being made. What's neat about Instax Square is it's very close to the size of a medium format square Hasselblad negative. And so the idea is, hey, you can put this on the rear of a Hasselblad 500 series and you can get this really cool look and the lenses and all that. And there is something magical about this. I do go out and I take portraits, for example, with the the SX-70 that I talk about. And yeah, it's a one-off. Yes, you can scan it and then you get a pretty good scan, right? These aren't just cheap 300 pixel digital prints. These are emulsion prints coming out of optical lenses, right? It's not the same as these new instant cameras that are just taking a digital photo and then it's printing the digital photo on an Instax or a, or a thermal paper or something like that. So when you do something this way, you're getting an actual emulsion image from a lens and it's i think really interesting even though it might be like oh it's too much but there's potential in this what i think these formats do 
is they let us experiment. And I think we're going to see more and more of these instant films because they really are magical. It's 2023 now, guys. And I use Polaroid. I use Fuji Instax. Uh, I think in general, in terms of image quality, Fuji Instax has more fidelity than Polaroid. Although I love, as I've said before, the Polaroid SX-70 black and white film. But what I think is fascinating is while you're not going to get the resolution of a medium format or even a 35 millimeter NIG, there's an organic one-off feel to these kind of images. And they do have an authenticity. There's, there's no AI. There's not even any any Photoshop. Obviously, you can scan it and do it in post, but your original is your original, and it's the only one. And I think being able to do that in good quality is pretty cool because most of the instant cameras you buy, whether they're Polaroid, whether they're Fuji, they just have this a cheap plastic lens on them. Sometimes there's a digital transition in between where it's taking a digital photo and then spitting it out the back, like in the case of some of the Instax cameras, not all of them. Um, it's still printing on chemical paper, right? Not a not the thermal paper like we get on some of the little Kodak portable printers and stuff like that, which are cool, but the quality is, is nowhere near. They don't have near that kind of heft and feel that a real chemical instant print has. And so I think there's something cool about that. I won't belabor it because I know you're not all into this instant stuff, but I'll put a link to this back. I haven't tried it. I'm not endorsing it. I just think it's a really fascinating concept. And letting us use more of these instant formats is going to do two things. It lets us just have fun and be creative with vintage camera gear and things like that. But also, it, it grows the opportunity in the markets for things like instant film. And I think that's a good thing because we don't want to lose these, these films, these technologies that are old analog technologies, but they're actually really important. Okay, moving on with the news nuggets. Uh, this article kind of popped out at me from the professional standpoint because we are the professional photography show. What would you do? And you can head over to the show notes and leave a comment on this one. Uh, this was an article. I actually saw this first on on Quora, I believe. And then there's an article about it on, or was it Reddit? Then there's an article about it on Petapixel. And it's this bride that wants a refund after like the assistant photographer slept with the groom. Uh, it, it, I, and sometimes I wonder if these are made up. I got it. Look, it's notorious on on things like Quora and Reddit that on these kind of stories and questions threads, and a lot of people with a lot of people moving away from Reddit because of their policies. I think we're going to see places like Quora and stuff growing because Reddit's really been cutting off communities and really doing a lot of stuff that's not been good for their their brand lately. But I've been still watching these kind of threads, and if this is real. If this is real, what would you do in a situation like this? And I think, like, would this be embarrassing if you contracted a second photographer and and then the your your client was pissed at them for something that was pretty serious, obviously, uh, and that maybe maybe ruined the marriage or something like that, right? So, what would you do? I mean, this is not your employee, and even if it is, what what they do on their own time is really not your business, even if, if you don't agree with it. And I think really this comes down to, I think the answer is really simple. And there's a lot of this uh, kind of, of victim mentality, right? Like this happened, so you owe me this, you need to do this. And I think 
we should always care about people. We should always be compassionate with people. We should always be loving to people. And I think it's really important as photographers that we understand the human element. I don't think we can be great photographers of people if we don't feel emotions, if we don't have uh, you know, an empathy for people. I think that really transforms photographers that, that photograph people because uh, I know as, as I've gotten older and I've seen, quite frankly, how how sucky and miserable this world is and how much suffering and injustice and abuse there is, it's made me much more sensitive to looking at people and really seeing them and looking in their eyes and and just, you know, driving by almost like you, have you ever driven by someone on the street? And I know I, I think is kind of a photographer, right? But you drive by and you almost feel like a sense from them, like, you know, you can tell that person's sad, that person's going through something, you can tell a person's happy. And I don't, I don't mean to get all weird. It's just like sometimes you can feel a certain, a certain spirit, a certain energy from people. And not to go off topic, I just feel like we need to be sensitive to people. But if you're hired to photograph a wedding, and this is one of the reasons I'm glad I don't really do much with weddings anymore, because it was always so much drama and dare I say fakery in a wedding, right? To impress everybody and do everything over the top. And, and I don't mean to say that all weddings are fakery and that there's not you know, love and family and passion in these things. I actually really like shooting weddings, but sometimes you you get clients and events and ph photography where it's almost like the emotion is staged. So you can, so the photos are going to be good. And that's not a good feeling as a photographer. Obviously you're there to document and that's your job and you're going to do a good job at it. So I don't want to come off as negative, but if something goes bad after the wedding, you were not hired to be a marriage counselor. You weren't hired to make sure that the purse people that were getting married, you know, had everything sorted out. You were hired to make good memories and capture what happened. And you don't owe someone a refund. And I think service is really important. But do you need to give someone a refund because someone that was on your team had an incident with the groom? I, I think not. And I think that this idea that the photographer always has to fix everything is a bit over the top. And we need to find balance and make sure that, you know, yes, you can be caring for people and you can decide in whatever situation what you should do. I remember I always had a policy of, of I never give all the photos, right? And this is a good policy. You should be able to go through your images. You take a thousand, two thousand, three thousand images on a wedding day. The client should be seeing all those. It's very lazy and it shows that you don't know what your best work is. And so you should be able to go through. I would always go through and I was very clear with the client up front. I, I didn't do this numbers game. And and we and in marketing, in low-end marketing, it's all about the numbers game. I see this with internet marketers selling like crappy Lightroom presets. And it's made like my job as someone who makes really high quality editing tools like Filmus presets. It's it's harder to compete because I'm not really an internet marketer. I'm I'm a passionate photographer making content. And when that market kind of got big, back in the day, I was the first one making commercially sold Lightroom presets back in the Pro Photo Show 1.0 days. And then when that market grew, all these internet marketers came out and I would see these ads like 5,000 Lightroom presets. And I was like, what? what? Why would you want that? Like you might as well not even use presets. There's so many, like you're never actually going to get to your focus and be able to get to where you need to go. This happens in photos too, like wedding photographers. Oh yeah, you get like 4,000 photos. Why would I as a groom or a bride want 4,000 photos to sift through? 
I'm paying a professional. And so I would always be very clear, no, you're going to get like two to 300 photos. And sometimes it was a little more than that. And if they wanted the photographer that would promise them 4,000 photos, go for it. Because I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to give them the duplicates and the junk, right? But speaking to this topic of of serving your customers and and saying, you know, sometimes you bend the rules for them. I remember one wedding that I did early on and I had all these photos and I gave them the photos, delivered them, everybody was happy. And about a year later, the bride passed away. And I was this was it was such a sucky situation. And I remember I think it was the mom, the mother of the bride said, like, do you have any more photos? And in that case, I said, yeah, here's everything. And was there bad ones in there? Yeah. But at that point, it didn't matter, right? It was about thinking about people at that point. And so there obviously should be lines in the sand to our rules, but I don't think that you need to give someone their money back because they're having issues afterward in their marriage. I think that's too far. And I also don't even know if this story is real. Like a lot of these stories on Reddit, on Quora, things like that, they can be all over the place. But I think it's a worthy topic regardless. Okay, moving quickly through the news bits. Let's talk a little bit about this racism story. These are always like, do we have to talk about these? Um, there was this, There's this store, right? And there's like a video on Twitter. And apparently... Th- this guy was in the store, a black man was in this store, and he went to this, what's the name of the store? I just, I had it here, and then I lost it, okay? At Ferenc. And there was a tobacco, there's like a tobacco room, and there's a, a photo from like 1907, the tobacco plantation, in this Ferenc Cobham store. It shows the tobacco plants. Really, I think it shows black men and then Cuban men. Basically, people were outraged by this, that they would have a photo like this in the tobacco room. They ended up taking this photo down after all this outrage. And whenever I see outrage, right, political outrage or anything like this over a photo, over a sports star or something like that, I I try to look into it and say, okay, what's actually going on here? Because... Usually when you kind of live in a TikTok world of of 30 second outrage, 30 second excitement, uh, where you see something and you're supposed to react, you get comments and, and the social media sites reward this. They reward videos that shock you, that outrage you, that surprise you, that get you to argue, that get you to put comments. And so those are the videos that come out on top and the stories that come out on top on social media because... The algorithm likes them. And so in going over this, again, as always, I'll link to an article on this. Uh, This photo appears to be from 1907, and it's of a plantation in Cuba. Cuba didn't have slavery in 1907. From everything I can tell and from what they're saying in this photo, like, this isn't depicting slavery And there's really kind of this idea of, oh, we have black people and they're white overseers is what they're saying. I don't want to be insensitive to the darker points in history, but I also don't think it's good to just erase 
elements and say, no, you can't show this. Now, I realize this is being shown in a commercial sense. It's like a tobacco room, right? It's showing like history of tobacco kind of thing. And if it's something that's truly offensive and you're showing it in a commercial sense, like, yes, there's a, I get that there's a line that can be crossed there. It, it goes back to what was it? The syrup where they took the the old the black maid off the syrup bottle um, and the Lando Lakes butter. They took the native the Native American off the land, the licks butter. And it, we're, we got all this stuff going on. And I, I don't usually get into politics stuff on this show. If I want to argue with people, I usually do it on you know my other channels or my Facebook or something like that. And so I don't want to be like aggressive about this, but I think we really need to think about this. We're talking about number one, history. And number two, the idea that you just have to please everyone all the time. Why, if you have these, these men... I don't care what their color is and they're working on a plantation like we can't we can't show that now because even though it wasn't slavery it's reminiscent of slavery i guess and that's offensive and we don't want our kids to see that so we have to erase the faces of these workers from the historical photos where people got to see them and what they were doing at what point is it too much and i'd kind of like to hear your guys's feedback uh, it, it seems to me that there's a lot of kind of triggering and overreacting. And I also don't want to be the guy that just takes one, you know, the right side or the left side or the party line because we're all just always fighting with each other, especially in the U.S. But I think this is kind of a worldwide thing where, oh, my party's outraged by this and we're triggered by this or the, they're triggered by this. I, I think we should always try and stop and say, hold on, what's actually going on here? Should we be outraged? And use it as an opportunity. Like I use this as an opportunity to do some history research and to say, hey, when did, this is from Cuba, this is a plantation, um, when did slavery end? Those are really important. I think documenting the good and the bad is is really important. And I think we have to think about our values and our lines and stuff like that. But I think it's very important that we don't have a mindset of erasing the things from history that offend us. It's very important. And sometimes we we should be outraged, but I, I didn't really see the outrage in this. And it's it's possible that I'm missing something, but I, I used it as an opportunity to do a little history research and kind of look and say, well, it seems to me that the store is kind of right. Like they're actually showcasing these workers and, and the work they did in Cuba. And I don't know. I don't feel like I should be offended by it, but let me know what you think. Maybe you have a different perspective. Maybe you have more information. As always, I'll, I'll link it over in the show notes, the the group thread on Facebook, as well as you can comment on the site. Let's talk about this new Fujifilm app because a lot of us use Fuji cameras. A lot of us even that use larger full-frame cameras, Nikon, Canon, Sony, etc., have a Fuji. I actually use my Fuji cameras more than my full-frames now. And you guys see me a lot on the on the videos on the channel with the Fuji X100 and things like that. And I have an X-T3. I use that for a lot of my, my portraits and fashion type work. And sure, I'll still take out the Sony full frame at times, but the quality is so good from their compact. And most of all, they feel good in the hand. I like Fuji most of all because it's kind of retro, but not just like hipster retro for the sake of it. They have dials for shutter speed and aperture. Not all their cameras. Some of them are a little more digital, but most of their cameras like the X-T3, the X100, it's dials. And I feel like a lot of the modern cameras, like a Sony, they're amazing cameras, but they're kind of like a computer that's a camera. It has a camera in it. 
And a Fuji camera feels more like a camera that has a computer in it. And so it appeals to my my enjoyment and getting inspired by by organic, classically designed things. Now, that may not be the case for everyone, and that's fine. But I know a lot of people use the Fuji app and the new Fujifilm X app. And I know I don't know why everything is X. Now Twitter is X. Um, my my graphics card control, no, my fan controller and CPU and graphics card controller is Precision X1 and and the Fuji X app. But this is this is the world we live in. We live in a world of Xs. Um, this app has definitely improved. These apps that come with cameras, and Fuji's actually one of the better companies, and the other camera companies could really learn from them. Fuji's always releasing firmware. They're improving the focus on their cameras, their lenses, and... Companies like Canon have really taken a hit. I said this all the way back a decade ago. I was saying, look, they're releasing things. We have technologies like Wi-Fi and stuff like that. And we have all these technologies in our phones. And yet the camera makers are just like not putting them in the cameras. They're releasing one little feature, every new product line, so that we just keep buying and buying and buying. And Fuji's actually really good at actually adding functionality with firmware after the fact, even if you have a a four or five-year-old camera and doing things like this where their past app was pretty cruddy and unreliable. And this new one is not perfect. I've been playing with it a little bit, but it's a lot more snappy. And the thing is, you can grab a Fuji camera, open up the app. It says, oh, your camera's on. Okay, you connect to the camera. You want to browse your photos? You want to download anything to your phone? And this is why people, I think, love, you know, the Fuji built-in film profiles. I, I don't ever edit my final images with a Fuji built-in film pro- profile. I'm going to do my own edit. I'm going to use a silver preset, a filmless preset, and then do my own tweaks for, on a RAW file. But for, on my X100, for example, I'll shoot small JPEG or some medium JPEG and then my RAW files. And I don't save the JPEGs on my computer and just have this kind of double, doubled up thing. What I do it for is so if I quickly want to just download a photo to the app, like a street photo or something that I like and put it on my Instagram, let's say, or quickly edit it on the phone... I can do that, and I just go, and it, it works. It works really well. So this new app is is improved. If you are a user of any Fuji cameras, definitely go check compatibility. And uh, I had to update firmware using the old crappy app, or just manually on the cameras, and then it was compatible with the new Fuji X app. And I, I don't know if they're getting together with with Elon Musk on the next project or not, but everything. Everything is X right now, and that just seems to be where we're at. I'm sure we're still recording because I've had some problems today. No, it's good. It's good. I should edit this stuff out, guys, but I probably won't because this is the Pro Photo Show podcast, not the YouTube video. And speaking of YouTube videos, let's let's call it for the news today and the news nuggets, and let's go to the main topic so that this podcast doesn't go too long because I want to talk to you about contrast. I did a video that was actually pretty popular over, I guess, last weekend, and it was a new video called Stop Using the Contrast. Stop using contrast. Stop using the contrast slider and the blacks and the white slider to to get the tone correct in your image. And I thought, okay, you know what? We're going to do a companion podcast to this video because it's a 14-minute video. To do YouTube videos that have any success, generally I have to really edit them tight, and sometimes there are people like, oh, this is kind of fast. You're throwing it at us fast. That's why we have the podcast. And here we can talk a little more in depth 
about this because I think it's a really important topic. If you guys follow my my work, my YouTube videos here on the podcast, you know I'm always talking about shadow. I'm talking about using zones. I'm talking about using tone, using the entire dynamic range of, of the scene from black to white and really pushing ourselves. So I did this video called Stop Using Contrast and it got actually a really good response on my little growing YouTube channel over at YouTube slash Slime Studios. So you can go check out this video if you haven't seen it for kind of the visuals aspect where I'm showing examples and I'm editing. And and if you haven't seen it, check it out. I think you'll find it worth the 14 minutes that you have. And of course, it will be in the show notes prominently over there so you can check it out. It's also on the blog at simefx.com from last week's blog post. What is important in this and the essence of the video because we can't show you the photos and the examples but the essence of the video is we take photos and then and then we think okay it needs more something's wrong so contrast sliders in all of our apps are always kind of the first one it's like the first thing that we used in photoshop back in the day you know it's easier than curves but you can fall into this trap using curves as well. Curves are much more nuanced and powerful. I've talked about on the channel how I use the F curve a lot. If you're not familiar with the F curve, check out the F curve on the channel. And let me make a note to put the F curve uh, link, F curve video in the show notes as well. And just kind of a variant of the S curve that I think is more, more good. I know that's really bad grammar and I'm a native English speaker, but there you go. So the F-curve video, I will put a link to in the show notes as well as the contrast video. But what I want to come back to is dig into this a little bit deeper. If, if you saw this video, if you didn't saw that, this video, that's fine. You take a photo and let's, let's make a scenario. Let me paint a little picture in your mind on today's main topic. You go out and you take a photo. You're walking. It's six o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's not quite going down, but you're 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 going down a lovely little Mexican street, and there's some colorful banners, and there's a taco cart on the corner, and you're like, "Oh, this is cool." And people are walking around. Maybe maybe it's a Saturday, and you've got you've got your your 35 mil on, and you're sitting there and you're looking at this, and the lights kind of hitting, and and down below is kind of a, a park, and you can see people playing there, and you start taking some street photos and you're like oh this is so cool and you're feeling it right you kind of feel the culture you feel the emotion the excitement there's things happening people are out enjoying their day they're eating they're laughing they're loving all of this stuff right so i've painted the scenario i'm not going to use a thousand words because it would go on too long so just look at a picture if you need to in your mind but okay what now you go back and you load it on the computer it looks great on your postage stamp size screen you go back you load it on the computer and it's like, okay. And then you're like, but in your mind, it's good. And you're like, it's a pretty good photo. And you're kind of thinking, maybe there's something missing, right? Maybe there's something missing, but no, it's good. I love this. And you share it and you're like, no, nah, this is good. This is a cool moment. Like there was that lady with the walker going down there and there's the kids running with the balloons. It's going to be good. And you post it, you share it to your social media, and the, the response is just... Wah, 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 wah. Yes, I'm still doing my own sound effects all these years later. But why? Why did you feel that photo and it didn't work? And this is something we talk about a lot in shadow hacking. If you have not been to one of my free shadow hackers classes, 
you definitely want to get signed up for one. I don't care if you're a master photographer or if you're new. Shadow hacking is what the photography industry is ignoring. And I'm going to show you how it works. So head over to simonfx.com slash shadow hackers to, to check out when the next workshop is. But people come to my shadows hackers workshop. We've all taken photos like this, whether they're weddings, whether they're street photography, whether they're landscapes, where we felt something and then you get there and it doesn't quite work. Well, a lot of these photos are just lacking shadow. They're lacking kind of the drama that, that brings them out. And it's something I talk about a lot. If you look at old master painters like Rembrandt's and stuff like that, these photos are paintings rather are filled with tons of shadow and the shadow lets you see the light. The shadow lets you see the nuance, the emotion, the drama. Now, this can be done in reverse, of course, with a high key photo, but it's still that shadow that lets you see the light. It's the contrast that you create with that shadow. And so I see this a lot with my shadow hacker students where they get excited about shadow hacking. And I'm always saying like, take this shadow hacking stuff out and go take photos, right? Go into the street tomorrow, go do a session tomorrow, put all this in your mind and put it to work. But of course our instinct is, okay, now I know shadow hacking. I'm gonna go edit some photos with shadow hacking because the principles of shadows are very important in the edit as well. It's something I talk about in the classes. But what happens with a lot of us is we hear this and you go and like, okay, shadow hacking. And we go crank up the contrast. And we've been doing this for decades, long before I was ever talking about shadow hacking and really refined the formula to the level that I have it today to really let us see why a photo worked and why a photo didn't work and how to, how to perfect it the next time. But it's this concept that goes back to another video from a couple of weeks ago where we just edit to death, right? So I've kind of had this series of videos that's kind of one is leading to the other, even though they're different topics. And I'll link that video as well if you didn't see it on the channel, but it covers the concept of, you know, you take a photo like this and you're like, no, I'll fix it by burning and dodging and contrast. And we edit it to death and it was never a great photo to begin with, right? And it's hard, it's hard for me as a as an instructor, as someone who really knows this stuff, who's a master photographer, who's been through the trenches and is still learning and also doesn't always get it right. And people share photos and they want feedback. And I'm looking at the photos and I'm telling myself, I see this a lot in our, in our shadow hunters group. And I'm looking at a photo and I'm like, it's just not a good photo. It's just not a good photo. It doesn't mean that nothing interesting is there, that it's not a good memory. There's lots of photos on my computer that aren't quote good photos, right? But as they age like a fine wine, yes, they get better because they're family memories and things like that. So the, uh, they can be important photos. They can be moments. So I'm not saying throw away all the photos that aren't good. Not every photo has to be in a gallery. But from a professional standpoint of like print this, of put it on the cover of a magazine, um, a lot of times it's not. And a lot of times it comes back down to, well, what's the subject? My eyes are all over the place. I'm not leading to any one thing because a great photo needs a subject, one now, that subject could be one person, one mountain, one sunset, one family group, but it needs a subject. And I've, I've told this to my students for years. You can't have more than one subject. You can have one subject and then you can have supporting cast. So when I ask, what's the subject? And they're like, oh, well, it's, it's the rocks and the sky. And I'm like, no, you can't have two subjects. What's the subject? Okay, it's the sky. Okay, so why, am I, why do I see the rocks first, right? Your subject in your photo is what everyone should be forced to see first. And I mean that emphatically. 
You should force your viewers to see your subject. You're trying to create an image, and I don't care if you're shooting weddings or children or babies or landscapes or street photography or news journalism. You are trying to capture something that's taking something real, not something AI generated, that's an emotion, an event, and that has feeling and convey that. And if, if you can't do that in a way that when the viewer then sees your final work and they're all over the place like, okay, it's a scene of like a bus, there's an old lady over there, there's a mountain over here, and there's rocks in the foreground, right? You can't have everything be your subject. You can have all those elements in the photo, but it's your job to compose, to use shadow, to use tone correctly so that whatever your subject is, is what they see. And most of this comes together if you know what your subject is. If you're on a scene, you're like, okay, what's going to be my subject? Once you are visualizing, once you know what your subject is, everything is going to change in your photos. Just like once you know shadow hacking, everything's going to change about the quality of your photos. But if you don't have a subject, it's hard. So, it's, okay, you got the subject. If you look at my photo that I often show of the birds in the Centro square of Ezequiel Montes, Mexico. And it's this black and white photo. You've probably seen it. And I'll put it in the show notes just, just to be sure. And it's one of my best street photos. It probably is my best street photo. And it's it's of all these black birds and they're swirling around the church clock tower and the sky is full of them. It's a little bit ominous. And there's a lot going on in that photo. There's an old lady in a wheelchair and she's selling candy. There's people sitting outside the church as mass is going on. There's, there's people riding around their bikes. There's people over at the taco stands. There's so much going on. But when you look at this photo, you are going to go right to the subject, which is the birds flying around the clock tower. And you're, then you're going to take it all in. But why is that? If you look at the photo, you're going to see that the emphasis is there because it was a good time of day, because there was a lot of shadow, right? It was right at sunset. So the upper areas were being lit. The birds were being lit, but everybody else was falling into shadow. And I kept it that way. I didn't go in and try and crank up the shadow and highlight to make it super HDRified. That's not actually what a real HDR is, is putting everything into the midtones. We need to use our tonal range. But it worked because the photo was good in camera. I processed it into a black and white with silver, black room actions, et cetera. And, and I refined it because I knew I had it. Like when I had that photo, I was like, yes. And sometimes you just know. And it's, it's one of my favorite photos because you feel it. You feel, I think, what I felt when I was standing there. Like, wow, this is kind of surreal. All these birds flying around the church. And you have to focus in your mind on what the subject is. Otherwise, how is, how is your viewer going to focus on what the subject is? Okay, but I'm not, I'm not getting off topic here. How's this related to the contrast slider? What happens is you go to that same place, that same church in Ezequiel Montes, Mexico, same things are happening, the same people are there, but it's two hours earlier. The sun is much higher in the sky. Everything's evenly illuminated. There's kind of specular highlights, or maybe we should say specular shadows because they're dappling through the trees. And it doesn't have... The impact. You take that same photo because you didn't really want to come back. You had a, a meeting later. You took that photo. It's a neat photo. And you're like, oh, this is, look at how cool this is. The birds are flying around the trees. Now, I don't have the bad version I'm talking about. This photo might have been a great vacation memory, but the shadow wasn't there. And we could say the light wasn't good and there'd be truth in that. But really, if you listen to what I just told you, what made the other photo 
was that you saw the light in the right way because of where the shadow was as the sun was going down. So then what happens is you say, okay, I just watched Gavin Symes Shadow Hackers workshop. I'm going to go in this photo because it's just not quite there. I'm going to push contrast. I'm going to pull the curves. I'm going to pull the blacks. I'm going to make it darker. And I see this a lot in the group. It sounds like, oh no, at a glance, you might think, I wouldn't do that. That's not going to work. You can't just push a contrast slider. But it happens a lot, even with experienced photographers where it's like, okay, let's let's emphasize our shadow more. Let's start seeing our shadow. And we just pull our blacks down. We pull the shadows down the curve. You can use all these tools. And one of the worst of them is probably the contrast curve because it gives you the least control. And I use the contrast curve tool for very subtle adjustments. It's more like the last tool I use, not the first. So I do all these curves. I do all this editing. I do color tones and all this stuff. Maybe I'm making a profile for a film preset, for a, a natural HDR preset, something like that. And then I'll use contrast a little up and down to bump it. Similar to how I'll use the exposure slider, right? I will use the exposure slider to, to just shift a little up and down in relation to the process I'm working on to get the right amount of light in the scene. For example, you might put on a Portra 160 preset, and then you'll go to some other a black and white preset and it's on the darker side and you're like, no, it's a little bit too dark. I might just comp it a little bit with exposure. That's why when I build presets, I never touch, almost never touch the exposure slider unless it's a preset that's actually supposed to be pushing exposure because it assumes that you put the exposure where you want it to. Lightroom, for example, Capture One, even their auto tools are so limited still. Lightroom has for years had the auto tone tools where it takes the tone elements of Lightroom contrast blacks whites exposure and it does auto and it works terrible like all these years later they still i'm like i'm kind of waiting for them to do something ai-ish with it because it doesn't work but it's, it works sometimes it's just not consistent and you're all over the map but it's the same thing where i'm always teaching where you shouldn't be trusting your meter it's not that the meter is wrong um if you've been to shatter hackers you know how how meters work a little bit more and what they're actually telling you and that the meter's not actually telling you the correct exposure. So that's something we go into in Shadow Hackers, but ultimately you don't want to just trust your meter either. You want to put your exposures and your your zones and your your tone values and your shadows ultimately where your visualization is. And if you do that, everything starts transforming. You not only are seeing the shadows and the tones, but you're knowing what's going on, you're knowing why it's happening and you're not going to come in and just say, "Oh, this is fun, but it's kind of flat, right? You can have two types of photo that are really boring or that don't work, I should say. Maybe they're not really boring. I don't know what the photo's of. But they don't work on a, on a really refined professional level. One is like your light is just boring and flat. So you go out and you're maybe at a, at a, at a car show and you're like, oh, this is a cool scene. First of all, a lot of times we get enamored. We kind of fall in love with where we're at because we like a thing, right? Maybe we like old cars, or we like trains and they're our thing. And so we'll go out and we have to separate, I think, our interests and passions a little bit with what makes a great photo. Because I see this a lot as well as people will go out to a baseball event with their kids. They'll go out to a car show and they're sharing photos that are really just snapshots. They're not done in great light and shadow. They're not composed well. There's a bunch of clutter. You know, you can see the sign in the front of the car. If you want to go out to a car show and take great photos of classic cars or Ferraris, you still have to think equally creative. And what happens is because people are excited about a photo, I've done this so many times, 
you went somewhere, you did something, and you're excited about it. And that's why I emphasize the professional photography in my groups. And I say, no, post your best stuff. We have a million snapshots on our phones. They're important. We should save them. All those snapshots of our kids, our mothers, our families, our grandmas, they're important. But they are different. And when we're trying to make a photo professional and we make a quality image that's worth being shown in the gallery, that's worth hanging on a wall, not just for us, but for other people, you have to hold yourself to a higher standard. And that's why, like, in the in the groups, I'm like, no, you can you can only share four photos from a session in a group. And preferably one, but, you know, sometimes you have a sequence of a portrait or poses or something, and it's okay to share more than one. But don't put 50 photos in. We don't actually want—this sounds, this sounds harsh, but people don't actually want to see 50 random photos of you walking around a car show. Now, it may have been a great day for you and your, your wife, your kids, your family, your brother, and that's good. I'm not knocking that. But from a professional standpoint, we have to be able to zone in and focus— and say, how can I make something great? And so you you got to kind of stop falling into this trap where you just take a bunch of snapshots. And then in post, we say, okay, I really like this photo. I feel this. I want people to respond to it. And maybe you shot midday sun in the car show. Maybe you, maybe you shot really flat light because it was super overcast. And it's just plain and boring. And now you're just going to go push the contrast slider. But what happens is... You create contrast as in more black and more light, more white, and you're kind of separating those two. So the contrast slider is kind of the amalgamation of if you use the black slider and the white slider, you have a little more control with those two, okay? Or then you go down another step and you use the one that you should probably be starting with, and that's the curves, because now you have very fine control over darks, mids, lights, etc., and color channels, but you can use that wrong too, just like you use the contrast slider wrong. Because you take this flat, boring photo that wasn't exciting, that exciting to begin with, and you start pulling the sliders around. And so you make darks darker and lights lighter, but your original photo didn't actually have contrast. It didn't have the shadows. And so all you're doing is you're taking the lack of contrast and you're doubling down on it and trying to push it harder. And it just looks like you pummeled it. It looks like you beat it to death. And this is something that I, I think I covered this pretty well in the video and more briefly, but I wanted to go into it a little bit more with a little more context, even if you haven't seen the video, because I'm not trying to beat up on anyone's photos here. I'm trying to help us understand the distinction between when we take snapshots, which is perfectly fine. I take snapshots all the time. I try and take good snapshots, and sometimes those almost cross over, even from my phone now, because the phone cameras are so good. Sometimes those cross over into, oh, I could print this, right? I don't usually print phone, phone photos, but I'll sometimes print them small or something like that. I mean, portrait mode on phones, especially on a small print, can sometimes look pretty amazing. But my mindset is different. And I think if we want to be really making great photos that are iconic and timeless and professional and selling them in particular, uh, or just improving our craft because we love it, we should be able to identify that difference. And when you're making a snapshot with the kids in the park, you can look for good conditions and try to take them in the best conditions. But it's okay if they come out to be a snapshot. But when someone's paying you to take their portraits, it's not okay if they come out as a snapshot. And you want to be able to find that shadow and that contrast. And ultimately what this comes down to is if you don't get contrast in camera, 
And you can have wrong contrast. If if high noon sun, you have lots of contrast, right? Those big bags under P, uh, your model's eyes are contrast. They're all dark and the, the top of their head and their hair is blowing out. So you can have too much contrast, but you can also have the wrong kind of contrast. A good contrast, in my experience, normally has lots of shadows and they fade gradually and nicely. They don't block up the eye. I'll see people, well, they'll have, they'll be like, oh, I'm gonna put shadows in and they'll just kind of darken it until they have a big black hole over here. But that black hole isn't the subject, right? So the shadows should lead the eye. The shadows should be something that the, your eye kind of dances across and it leads you to the subject. And along the way, it's creating mood, it's creating drama, and it can lead you through the scene. If you see a photo that I've done well, your eyes are going to go, and I've taught this with burning and dodging for a long time, but you can overdo that too. You can use burning dodging to help accent and create contrast in, in very powerful ways. But as I showed in my recent video on over-editing, I showed a video I took like a decade ago of a photo um, where I liked the photo. And so I just worked it where I wanted to print that photo. I wanted it to be like kind of this infrared, cool black and white look. And I just kind of pummeled it to death. Go, You can go check out that photo. I'll show that as kind of a contrast to my bird's photo where my shadows were beautiful and they worked and you saw what I want you to saw. <laughs> you saw what I want you to see. You saw what I wanted you to see. There we go. Uh, sometimes my grammar gets off speaking Spanish and English all the time. Actually does kind of confuse my grammar a little bit because of the way the two languages work. <laughs> uh, but I really do speak English. I, I promise. You can see the contrast in those two photos. The one was a photo that had really flat, plain, ugly light like I showed you on the video. And it just wasn't great. And I was trying to make it great. And I just beat it to death with sliders and with burning and dodging. And the other was a photo that genuinely had good shadows and a beautiful scene. So should you, should you stop using contrast in the way that we've kind of been taught where you're just cranking sliders up? I need more shadow or oh, push the blacks down. No, that's not how you create contrast. That pushes your contrast more in one way or the other. And so the more minimal the tool, the less control it gives you, the contrast slider gives you the, the least, right? It's darkening darks and lightening lights and any more than like maybe 10 or 20 points in either direction, just to kind of bump a photo up or down. It just gets ugly really fast. Blacks and whites, right? You can say, oh, it's a little flat. I want to lighten the lights. I have good shadow, but I want to lighten the lights. Okay. With blacks and white sliders and capture one in Lightroom, et cetera, uh, Photoshop, Neo, you can, you can get that effect and you kind of get this backlit effect. Don't do it too far because you'll clip the highlights. And then with curves, of course, you can go further with levels, all this stuff, right? So use your tools, but stop using contrast in the way that, that we've been taught. And we have this problem of digital came along and we kind of just threw out all the technique that we learned from the painters, that we learned from large format, that we learned from film. And we're like, oh no, we can fix everything in post now. And this mindset has really kind of infected the entire photography industry to where everything's a slider. Oh, here's the AI make it good slider, right? I, I, I love AI selections in Lightroom. It's put Lightroom so far ahead of Capture One in terms of efficient workflow and editing for most people. It does depend on what you're doing. And, and Capture One does good edits, but Lightroom's really pushing the envelope. But I'm not making an AI photo with that. I'm just using the AI to help me make selections of skies and things like that and then mix them up. 
In fact, you know, in my case, I build those into my Elegant Speed Mask presets so that I can say, no, I want to kind of accent the sky here. I just click the preset and it's going to build the mask and give me the sky and then I can tweak it as needed. But I'm not making an AI generated anything. I'm making my photo the way I visualized it and the way I wanted it. And that is, I think, an important distinction, even though I don't want to go too deep down the AI rabbit hole today because we talk about it all the time. My topic for today was really focused on, hey, stop using contrast the way we've been taught to use contrast. Stop thinking that contrast and shadow is just a slider because if you if you throw that out and realize that you have to get contrast, it doesn't matter how great of tools you have to edit, you can have all the Gavin Sign presets and actions and all the AI tools and et cetera, et cetera. But I still want us to get the photos in camera because if you get it, I said it for decades, if you get a great photo in camera, it's going to be an amazing photo when edited well. If you get a mediocre photo in camera, it's just going to be slightly better when edited well. So get it in camera. Visualize. See the contrast. See the shadows in your photo for real. Not just like, oh, there's a dark spot. No. When I say hunt shadows, I mean you're hunting shadows, looking for those shadows, hacking those shadows and saying, how can I use shadow to make my subject more important? Ask yourself that. And if then you're like, oh, what's my subject? Then you need to stop and go there first, then come back to point two, right? And I hope this is, is helpful. I know it's really helped me to see where I'm, where I'm lacking and it continues to, because this is why I love trying different genres and doing different things, because I want to keep pushing myself, being, getting a degree in photography, winning awards, this stuff is encouraging to us and kind of helps our egos and stuff like that. But ultimately it's so easy to take a photo, but it's hard to be able to consistently make amazing photos. And I think that is where the game changer is with, with shadow hacking. So definitely follow along the YouTube channel as well. If you're not subscribed, like and, and subscribe over there. And we'll keep growing the podcast here so we can talk a little more long form about topics like this and what's actually going on behind the scenes when we shadow hack. Okay, that is our main topic for the day. Let's wrap this up because I've probably gone too long. I want to throw out my pick of the day pick of the week, pick of the month. What are, what are we even calling this? We have to rethink everything now, Gavin. And that's the Fujifilm Instax wide printer. This thing's not super expensive. You can pick one up for, I think, 100, 150 bucks US, 3,000 pesos mexicano. This has actually been on my wish list for about a year and just hasn't been the priority. But I finally picked one of these up. I have an Instax mini link and it makes these little tiny little photos, right? And a lot of times this goes back to the whole instant prints, right? These are emulsion prints. But of course, with the printer, you're sending a digital file to the printer, like from your phone. And there's an app that's an Instax wide app where you can wirelessly send just an image from your phone. And you get these really great prints out of this thing. And these are chemical prints. So I also have, I have the Instax mini, and then I have one of the Kodak mini two retros. I, I've always liked little portable printers, even though they're small. Yes, I love wall portraits, but I also like to be able to make small prints. But these small ones, they're like you know, one and a half by three inches or something like that, two by three, something like that. They're small, like card size prints. 
And the Mini 2 Retro is really cool. It's these little self-contained printers that you don't have to put ink in. Um, the Canon Selfie, like 1200, 1300, 1400, 1500 series, does 4x6 prints this way. And, and those style, as well as the Kodak Mini Retro, they're really cool and self-contained. But they do paper prints with these kind of red, green, blue ribbons, and then they usually put a clear coat on top. And so they're they're cool. They're fun to watch. They're fun to use. The prints aren't terribly magical out of them. They're not super high resolution. They're, they're, they're useful. In the early days of doing my weddings, I would actually stand out because I would make a little photo album. I got these little self-stick 10-page 4x6 albums, and this would still be really cool today. It was a lot of work. I was running all day. But I would shoot all day. I would edit... Uh, for a, a, a slideshow, right? This was before all this social media, Facebook, Instagram, right? So people really responded to this. Um, kind of do the David J style slideshow at the wedding reception where you take the best photos throughout the, throughout the day and people could stand around and watch and you'd have a stack of business cards there and people really responded well to that. So I, I was like, I'm going to take this a step further and I'm going to have these little 10 print mini albums and I'm going to give them one as a surprise before they leave. And so I'd be in the back room, like in between lulls, printing out, like taking the best photos from the laptop and printing out four by sixes and then building this album there on the spot. And the clients were just amazed. They were like, wow. But it was stressful, almost maybe too much to the point where I risked being distracted if something happened, right? I would always have Sandra like watching the door, like make sure they're not cutting the cake yet. <laughs> so I didn't miss anything. Um, and I got fast at this stuff. And so I used a lot of these kind of printers. I, I don't think I would go to that extreme at a wedding anymore because I, I think oh, oh, the slideshow maybe, but the printing of the photos, maybe that's a bit too much. But I still love printing photos. Real photos, Polaroids, large prints, small prints. They're really cool. And this Instax wide printer is really neat because it gives you a print that's a little more tangible. Um, it's not just tiny. It's not It's not a 4x6 even. It's more like a 3x5 maybe, maybe even a little smaller. But it's got that that Polaroid Instax-style border around it. It feels substantial in the hand. It feels like something real because it is. It's a chemical print. And I have to say that if I compare, and these are very compact, self-contained things you can have in your bag. The cartridges hold 10. Yes, they're a little expensive. But I don't think expensive prints, just like shooting a roll of film, is expensive now. I don't think it's always a bad thing because it makes us self-analyze our photos and really use our best work and say, okay, this is going to cost me. What do I want to print to give them, right? What do I want to print to put on my little, my little cork board? And it's just a small print. But there's something magical about chemical prints in comparison to like these thermal prints. And so I could take both these printers side by side and I would still be much more excited about the real chemical Instax print, even though the file is coming from my phone or I've transferred it, you know, from a bigger camera to the phone or I'm printing it through some other means. So I can print my, my, all my photos on this however I want, but ultimately I'm sending a digital photo to this printer and it's printing it. It's not a camera in of itself like a Polaroid SX-70. Both have their place, but I'm pretty impressed so far by this little Instax wide, and it definitely impresses me a bit more than the Mini. A pack of 20 is about $25 or so. So yeah, it's a little bit expensive. It's about a dollar a piece. You're not going to make hundreds of these, probably. Well, you might. <laughs> you might fall in love with them. But these kind of things, I think, 
making prints in general, I've always been a huge fan of. I always have printers around. I've always talked about it. I've showed it on the channel. I've talked about it on the podcast. But even little prints like this, there's nothing wrong with it costing you a little bit. That's that's okay because you're going to think more and it's going to make you a better photographer. And while I think these kind of tools can be useful for us as professionals for making prints, et cetera, I think a lot of what they do is they help keep our creativity flowing. They help inspire us. Uh, if we're having fun making photos and also if we're challenging ourselves, we're like, oh, I should have done that better. You see more when you make a print. You just do. And I've said it for years. And despite having great monitors and screens and all this stuff, you see more. So yeah, the the Fuji Instax Wide right now is probably my favorite compact battery, kind of self-contained portable printer. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'll put a uh, affiliate link if you guys want to check it out and support the channel a little bit as well and pick one up. Okay, I think that's all for today's show. Let me know what you guys think. Head over to the site, simefx.com forward slash shadow hackers to check out my shadow hackers workshop and profotoshow.com for the show notes today. And just go check out simefx.com if you want to check out my latest projects like like filmist workshops other things like that just feel free to browse around the site and go to the blog of course to see the latest videos or go directly to my youtube channel youtube.com forward slash sign studios s-e-i-m studios and uh join us over there i'll put all the links to all this stuff in the show notes and we will see you guys next time let me know what you think about all the stuff we talked about today in the comments i want to hear from you and as always you can send me an email Show at gmail.com if you have feedback as well. Thanks for listening. Keep shooting, and we will see you on the next one. Peace. Peace.